0: Chapter 8. Neutrality is a myth. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. Matthew 6.24 Two masters give conflicting orders. Both cannot be right. It is our task to submit ourselves to the master who will give us the righteous orders, according to righteous law, and who will judge our responses righteously. But what is the proper definition of Righteous. The Bible gives us the answer, whatever the Bible tells us. The humanists also give us an answer, whatever the humanists tell us. Either way, we are arguing in a circle. The question is, is it a righteous circle or a vicious circle? To argue on the basis of righteousness is to argue on the basis of ethics. Until we get ethics straight in our minds and lives, we will remain confused. But one thing is sure. If the fundamental issues of government are issues of ethics, then there can be no neutrality. Passing a law hurts some people and benefits others. Not passing the same law reverses the beneficiaries and victims. So there is no escape. There must be beneficiaries and victims. There can be no neutrality. The early church. For example, the Roman Empire and the Empire's Jewish officers were at war with the church. The early Christians were accused of turning the world upside down, Acts 17.6. In one sense, those pagans who were negatively affected by the preaching of the gospel were correct in their assessment of how Christianity changed their culture. Their godless, humanistic, decaying world was revealed as empty through the gospel's consistent application to their way of thinking. These unbelievers understood the implications of the gospel. The Christians act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, verse 7. Caesar or Christ, man or God, the state or the kingdom. First century humanists saw that their world was jeopardized by the claims and demands of Jesus Christ. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Hebrews 12:26 and 27. In another sense, these first century humanists were wrong. Their worldview assumed that a godly order must be upside down. In reality, a Christian world order is right side up. Society does not function properly unless the effects of God's word permeate every corner of culture. At this moment, the world appears upside down, ethically upside down. The Christian's task, through God's powerful provision in the gospel, is to turn it right side up, in and over the world, but not of the world. Many Christians have refused to bring the first century Christian faith into the twentieth century, Often they are confused when they read Jesus' words, My kingdom is not of this world, John 18.36 Jesus did not say his kingdom does not operate in this world. He did not say his kingdom is not over this world. When Jesus states his kingdom is not of this world, he emphasizes the origin of his kingdom's power and authority. It simply does not derive its authority from the world. His disciples had scattered. There was no army following Jesus. This should have been obvious to Pilate. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. John 8:36. He in no way repudiated his own authority. He was not internalizing his kingdom for he was god the creator who made the external realm he simply pointed to the obvious his kingdom does not come from this world caiaphas the high priest interrogated jesus on religious questions caiaphas wanted to know if jesus was the christ the son of god matthew 26:63 This did not concern Pilate. In fact, in order to have Pilate hear the grievances of the religious leaders, a political threat to the jurisdiction of Pilate or Rome had to be fabricated, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Luke 23.2 Unless Jesus was portrayed as a political threat to the Roman Empire, they knew Pilate would not hear their case. Pilate's question about kingship and kingdoms concerned mere political power. Jesus was questioned from Pilate's perspective. Would Jesus bring an army? How large would it be? Since he was to be king of the Jews, Luke 23, 3, would Jesus incite a rebellion among the Jews to usurp Pilate's position of authority? What sort of weaponry would he use? Pilate believed, and did many Jews of that day, that armed conflict alone could extend a kingdom. It was a king's duty Pilate fought to use the power of the military against an enemy. Since Jesus was a king, Pilate assumed he must command an army. This was the Roman way. The Pax Romana was maintained through force. Jesus' response to Pilate shows that Pilate failed to understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom. In John 1837, Pilate says, so you are a king Pilate understood that Jesus did not deny kingship, for Jesus answered Pilate's tentative question, You say correctly that I am a king, for this I have been born, Luke 1, 32, 33 22. 2. And for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of tr- truth hears my voice, John 18.37. Later, Jesus informed Pilate that his position of political authority and, by intimation, that of All who rule, compare Romans 13.1, was subject to God's kingly rule. Jesus is ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5. When Jesus kept silent regarding Pilate's question concerning his origin, John 19.9, Pilate grew indignant. You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Verse 10, Jesus' answer settled the matter about the operation of God's kingdom. Unless the kingdom of God operated in and over this world, what Jesus next said would be false. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Verse 11, looking for political solutions. Confusion over Jesus' words develops from a false notion that the answer to man's problems is solely political. There were numerous occasions when the crowds wanted to make him king. For example, John 6:15. While there were political implications to Jesus' kingship, just as there are personal, familial, economic, business, ecclesiastical, and judicial implications, the kingdom of God cannot be brought about politically. Good laws do not make good people. They can at best prepare people to become good people by restraining outward evil. Only the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration makes people good. The state has a God-imposed jurisdiction to perform kingdom activities related to civil affairs according to the specifics of God's word. The people in Jesus' day saw the kingdom of God in externals only. They visualized the kingdom of God as coming, not through regeneration, but revolution. Jesus said of his followers, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled, John 6.26. It was Jesus' message about mankind's need for salvation and about him as the Savior, the Messiah of God, that caused the religious and political establishments of the day to seek his death. The kingdom of God never advances through political intrigue, backed by military power. Though power directed its power comes from above and works on and in the heart of man. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Ezekiel 36 27 Self-government, wherein God subdues the hearts to teachableness, leads to godly family, church, and civil governments. Compare 1 Timothy 3:1 through 13 Implements of war, which deteriorate over time or become obsolete, are only as reliable as those who manufacture and use them. Moreover, such weapons affect only externals. They can subdue a people, but they cannot regenerate those dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 The supernatural power that energizes God's kingdom is never bound by political rhetoric. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. 1 Corinthians 4.20 the battle against the kingdoms of this world is waged through the awesome power inherent in God's Word, energized by His Spirit. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powered for the destruction of fortresses. 2 Corinthians 10:3 and 4. As Christians, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ, verse 5. This is kingdom living, dominion living. The kingdom of God advances by changing the hearts and minds of those who oppose Jesus Christ and his law. The kingdoms of this world are at war with the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and it is the duty of all Christians to be involved in that war until the gates of Hades can no longer stand, Matthew 16:18. Saved by law? Old Testament Israel was given what can be described as a full-orbed or comprehensive biblical worldview. Every area of life was to be interpreted in terms of God's revealed law. The law was God's standard of righteousness. It was never designed to make a person righteous. Too many Christians have been led astray with the false notion that Israel was saved by the law. Never its God-designed function. While New Testament believers are saved by grace through faith. The false inference is made that since the law played such a major part in Israel's salvation and grace now plays the major part in the Christian's life, the law should be abandoned in favor of grace. There is really no justification for such a belief. The Israelites were to have circumcised hearts, equivalent to the New Testament's requirement to be born again, John 3.3. Circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more, Deuteronomy 10.16. And, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. Deuteronomy 36. This is regeneration. This is not justification through the works of the law. Regeneration makes the heart of stiff-necked and rebellious men and women submit willingly to their heavenly Father. When the heart is made new, it is able and ready to love. How do we show our love for God? by keeping his commandments. Isn't this what Deuteronomy thirty six maintains? Isn't this what the New Testament tells us? John fourteen fifteen. Israel's keeping the law was an expression of their love for God. The proper ordering of society arises from regenerate individuals who move into the broader culture to be salt and light. Matthew five thirteen through sixteen SALT is a preservative, keeping the culture from experiencing social entropy The inevitable decline of society as sin works out its rotting effects. The Christian also is light, pointing out the way to the spiritually blind. As Christian cultures develop toward the final days... Aren't we serving as lights to all nations in every case where the gospel becomes a shaping influence in any one nation? Shouldn't we strive to create a society which will shine ethically before other nations, just as we try to do in our families, our churches, and our businesses? Obviously, this passage applies both to individuals and to groups of Christians, yet many Bible teachers draw an arbitrary line at politics and say, thus far and no farther, Jesus, your words... Do not speak to this area of life. Yes, Israel was supposed to shine, and Israel had less light than we do. For you have come, but Christians have less responsibility. A godly society before pagans was an important aspect of evangelism in the Old Testament. Why not today? Many Christians contend that if enough people are saved, the broader culture will change automatically. On the surface, this might seem reasonable, but it misses a vital element. While the regenerate person certainly has a new disposition to do right, he is often left without knowing what to do. The specific ethic of God's revealed laws has become reduced to the single ethic of love. Of course, the Bible does command us to love, but love without specific guidelines is nothing more than sentimentality. The earth is the Lord's. Restoration begins by realizing that we live in the midst of God's kingdom. God's pattern for godly living is established in heaven. In the Lord's prayer, we petition God, "Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven." Matthew 6:10. God has not called us to forsake the earth, but to impress heaven's pattern on earth. The Bible does not support the belief that Christians should abandon the world. Christians are to be salt and light. Matthew 5:13 and 14. Salt is useless unless applied to potentially decaying material. Light is not needed unless there is darkness, Matthew five, fifteen, Luke two, thirty two. Without involvement in the world, neither salt nor light are of any value. Christians are to be in the world, but they are not to be of the world, John seventeen, fourteen through sixteen. They are not to be squeezed into the world's mould, Romans twelve two. They are not to be led astray by the elementary principles of the world, Colossians two eight. They are to keep themselves unstained by the world, James one twenty seven. They are warned not to get entangled in the defilements of the world, 2 Peter 2.20. Nowhere are they told to abandon the world. Compare Matthew 28, 18-20, John 3.16. The world is corrupt because people are corrupt. Where corrupt people control certain aspects of the world, we can expect defilement. But the world does not have to remain in decay. When individuals are redeemed, the effects of their redemption should spread to the society in which they live and conduct their affairs. The world of pagan thinking and practice is to be replaced by Christian thinking and practice. It is a perversion of the gospel to maintain that the world, as the dominion where evil exists, is inherently corrupt. We should remember that Jesus came to this world to give his life for its redemption. John 3.16 Christians must be transformed by God's word and not be conformed to the world's principles. As Christians work in the world through the power of the Holy Spirit, the world will be transformed a cleansed and redeemed earth there is no inherent sinfulness in material things scripture says jesus shared in flesh and blood hebrews 2:14 he who denies that jesus christ has come in the flesh is the deceiver and the antichrist second john 7 compare first john 4:1-3 man's body is not inherently sinful we shall have bodies in the resurrection as jesus does john 20:24 20, through 27 in the resurrection we will be raised imperishable 1 corinthians 15:52 by denying the spirituality of god's created order we neglect its importance and give it by default to those who deny christ worldliness is to be avoided not the world god created everything holy good genesis 1:31 man through the fall became profane defiled by sin Redemption restores all things in Christ. Peter failed to understand the gospel's comprehensive cleansing effects. He could not believe the Gentiles were clean. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Acts 10, 15, Matthew 15, 11, Romans 14, 14, and 20. We should not say that the fall eradicated God's pronouncement that the created order was very good. Genesis 131. The New Testament reinforces the goodness of God's creation. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. 1 Timothy 4, 4, and 5 These verses give Christians no license to sin. All things are good while the word of God remains our standard. Scripture is our guide and not the platonic view of matter as chaotic and imperfect. God became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. Jesus worked in his earthly father's shop as a carpenter, affirming the goodness of the created order and the value of physical labor. The Bible, a political textbook. The Bible is filled with politics. Here are just a few examples of political concerns found in the Bible. Noah is given authority to execute murderers, Genesis 9, 6, 7. Joseph is made ruler in Egypt, Genesis 4138 38-49. Israel is kept in bondage by a political ruler who sets himself up to oppose the kingdom of God, Exodus 1, 8-14, 1-31. Case laws are tabulated for family, church, and state, Exodus 21-23. God instructs both priests and kings to follow the law of God, Deuteronomy 1714 20 the book of Judges shows the interrelationship between religion and government. 1 Samuel 8 shows how rejecting God as Israel's true king leads the people to substitute him with an earthly king and attempt to equate the state with the kingdom of God. The books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles tell of the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms with individual kings singled out for special counsel by God's emissaries. For example, Jeremiah 36-38. Daniel serves as one of Darius's three civil commissioners, Daniel 6. The realm of politics or civil government is given much attention in the Bible, in both the Old and New Testaments. Kenneth Gentry writes, That God is vitally concerned with political affairs is quite easy to demonstrate. It is God who ordained governments in the first place, Romans 13, 1, Romans 2, 21. He is the one who establishes particular kings Proverbs 16:12 Psalms 119, 46, 47, 82:1-2. Therefore, he commands our obedience to rulers Romans 13:1-3. Rulers are commanded to rule on his terms Psalms 2:10. Even in the New Testament, activity of political import is discoverable. Jesus urged payment of taxes to de facto governments Matthew 22:15-22. In response to the reminders of King Herod's political threats against him, Jesus publicly rebuked the king by calling him a vixen, Luke 12:32. He taught that a judge is unjust if he does not fear God, Luke 18:2-6. John the Baptist openly criticized King Herod, Luke 3:19-20. Peter refused to obey authorities who commanded him to cease preaching, Acts 5:29. The Apostle John referred to the Roman Empire as the beast, Revelation 13. Denial of political involvement repudiates most of the Bible. Paul makes it clear that the saints will judge the world, 1 Corinthians 6.2. The context of this verse has to do with constituating the smallest law courts. Christians at various times in history have judged the world. The foundation of Western legal tradition is Christian. The demise of the West results from Christians' non-involvement in every sphere of life, the civil sphere included. Legislating either morality or immorality Life's political sphere should not be used to change or reform men and women, though the fear of punishment does change people from considering criminal activity. The law's purpose as it relates to the civil magistrate is to punish and restrain evil to protect human life and property and to provide justice for all people using god's word as a standard only god can regenerate the heart an individual cannot be made good by law keeping the bible exists as the state's perfect standard of justice in fact this truth remains primary in the establishment of justice When the Bible speaks to civil affairs, civil government has a duty to heed its commands. How will civil government determine what is good or evil unless God's law is consulted? Where God's law is not the standard, there can be no objective standard for man to follow. We live in an era in which the Bible is rejected as the state's authority. Killing unborn babies is legal, and the state, through a corrupt tax system, uses the tax money to support this heinous crime Religion and in particular, biblical law cannot be separated from life in general and politics in particular. For example, the speed limit was reduced from 70 miles per hour to 55 miles per hour, for two advertised reasons: first, to save lives; second, to cut fuel consumption. Both reasons are value-laden and rest on moral considerations. They presuppose that human life is valuable and that society at large is valuable. If the world runs out of fuel, then everyone is hurt. Laws, political laws, were instituted to enforce these moral, value-laden concerns. When reason or the will of the people determine what should become law, in time, law change to reflect the heightened reason of some or the shifting opinions of others. If we divorce religion from politics, the only thing left is irreligion, which becomes religion of its own. Man is his own God, determining good and evil for himself. Man bows not to God's law, but to the will of the people. Why? The people give him power to rule. The relationship between religion and politics cannot be avoided. The question is not, do religion and politics mix? Rather, it is, which religion will be mixed with politics, or form the basis for politics? Israel was not judged because it mixed religion and politics, but because it mixed the wrong religion with politics. Today it is no different. The potential for judgment is the same. Dirty Politics The first chapter of Genesis ends with this evaluation of God's creation. And God saw all he had made, and behold, it was very good. 1.31 Things in themselves are not necessarily evil. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was not evil. Even as Adam and Eve ate the fruit, the fruit was not evil. The garden where they committed their sin was not evil. The decision they made was evil. What they did with God's good creation was evil. The political sphere is a created entity. So is the family order. So is the church order. God has instituted all governments. Anyone who would say that, on principle, he wants nothing to do with either church government or family government is clearly a covenant breaker. The same is true of anyone who says that on principle he wants nothing to do with civil government. Mankind images God. God is the governor over all creation. He has called us to be governors under his one government. The civil or political sphere is an area of legitimate governmental activity. It is dirty, i.e. evil, when evil men practice evil schemes. So is every other area of human responsibility—business, law, education, labor, or whatever. Sin has affected every institution. This means that God's law has called every institution into judgment. In short, no law, no sin. Romans 7, 7 7-12 The person who says that God's law does not judge every area of life and every institution is saying that these institutions are not sinful, not in rebellion, and clearly not dirty but they are dirty. Christians therefore must insist that the gospel of Jesus Christ can cleanse every institution from sin. God has given us a comprehensive gospel that offers comprehensive redemption. Salt and light are necessary because of the reality of sin. Christians should be involved in politics even if it is dirty. Who else has the means to clean up politics, or any other area of human activity? If Christians do not, who will? Christians have stayed out of politics, making its corruption even more pronounced. The answer is not to consign politics to even more corruption by ignoring its potential as an area for redemption and restoration. The Bible never condemns political involvement. John the Baptist did not rebuke Herod for his political position, but for his sinful actions as ruler. Jesus does not quarrel with Pontius Pilate over whether he should rule, but only reminds him why he rules, and implicitly, by what standard he rules. Paul calls rulers God's ministers, servants in the political sphere, Romans 13.4. Paul appeals to Caesar, the seat of Roman political power in order to gain a hearing. The desire to retreat from political concerns is recent within our history. John Witherspoon, a minister in the Presbyterian Church and the president of the College of New Jersey, which later became Princeton, was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. The framers of the Constitution With no more than five exceptions, and perhaps no more than three, were Orthodox members of one of the established Christian communions, approximately 29 Anglicans, 16 to 18 Calvinists, two Methodists, two Lutherans, two Roman Catholics, one lapsed Quaker and sometime Anglican, and one open deist, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, who attended every kind of Christian worship, called for public prayer, and contributed to all denominations. Summary The eighth basic principle in the biblical blueprint for civil government is that there can be no neutrality or passivity in the advance of God's kingdom. It parallels chapter 3, which deals with biblical law and biblical ethics, point three of the biblical covenant. For many Christians, evil times are evidence that the end is near, and Jesus is about to return to remove us from a steady, decaying world. For such, prophetic pronouncements have been self-fulfilling. For generations, Christians have been saying, This is it! Now is the time for the end! Instead of Christians working out their salvation with fear and trembling, the Church of Jesus Christ has retreated into passivity in fear and trembling. In the process of retreatism, in the face of an advancing secularism, things have gotten worse. But what do we expect? We've removed the only preserving factor, the Church of Jesus Christ, as the salt of the earth. Things will be even worse for the next generation. What will these Christians do? Will they, too, maintain that it's the end? Or will they see the errors of the past and work to preserve and reconstruct the world to the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith? Christians ought to be turning the world right side up. Through the preaching of the gospel and the application of God's law to every area of life, This is all possible because Jesus' kingdom operates in the world, although it does not derive its sovereignty, authority, and power from this world. Jesus was a threat to the religious and political leaders of his day because he held them accountable to his law. On the other hand, others looked to Jesus as a political messiah, rejecting his saving work and the demand for repentance. The earth belongs to the Lord and to those whom he gives it as an inheritance. The world has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Therefore, let us not call unholy what God now calls holy. God-ordained government. Government, even civil government, is good. The Bible is filled with politics. For example, there are two books in the Bible titled Kings. Politics is not inherently sinful. Politicians may be, but so are fathers, mothers, children, teachers, businessmen, ministers, and doctors. God calls his people to act out the redemption Jesus has accomplished for the whole universe. Remember, Jesus is the Savior of the world. In summary, 1. No man can serve two masters. 2. We need to serve a righteous master who gives us righteous law and who judges righteously. 3. The Bible must provide our definition of righteous. 4. The issue, therefore, is ethics. 5. The fundamental issues of government are ethical issues. 6. A law says yes to one group and no to another. 7. In the early church, the issue was Christ or Caesar. 8. The humanists of the Roman Empire were threatened by the church. 9. The first century world-transforming Christian faith has not been brought Into this century. 10. Jesus' kingdom did not originate in this world, but it was always intended to change this world. 11. The kingdom of God cannot be brought in politically. 12. The people follow Jesus because he fed them by the miracle of the loaves. 13. The kingdom of God is powerful, the power of the Spirit. 14. A war is in progress between Christ's kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. 15. We are to pray that God's kingdom impresses itself on the institutions of this world. 16. The world can be progressively modeled by Christ's kingdom. 17. The world can become cleansed progressively. 18. The Bible does establish guidelines for politics, although it is not a political book. 19. The denial of political involvement is the denial of many portions of the Bible. 20. Law legislates either morality or immorality. 21. There is no such thing as neutral legislation. 22. Religion and politics are always mixed. 23. The question is, which religion? 24. Politics is dirty because Christians have abandoned politics. 25. God's law has called every institution under judgment. 26. Retreatism is not biblical.